Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> Pick up where we left off last week. Hebrews chapter 6. We'll look at verses 1 to 7 this morning. <clears throat> this morning we come to one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible. It's difficult, difficult because it raises that thorny issue of the relationship between God showing undeserved grace to us no matter what we've done and at the same time God holding us accountable for what we do. For me these difficult things come together in a simple statement that you'll hear from me often which is grace demands a response. It's always grace. We haven't earned a thing. We have no merit in anything we do. But that grace re- demands a response from us. And that response is not optional, as we'll hear in this text this morning. Let me read it. We talked about Hebrews 1, 1 to 6 last week, but we're going to finish that and go on to verse 7 as well. So let me read Hebrews, 1, Hebrews 6, 1 to, 6, 1 to 7. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and a faith in God, instructions about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, that produces a crop useful for those uh, for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. In these verses, we have these two lists which we talked about last week. We use these lists as an occasion for self-examination. In verses 1 and 2, we're given a list of the elementary foundational truths of the Christian faith. And so we ask you to examine yourself. Do I understand the Christian faith? Or is it something of my own imagination? And then in verses 4 and 5, we're given a list of various elements of the Christian life. And so we ask you to examine yourself. Have you experienced this kind of Christian life? If not, then your experience may be something different than Christianity. Those lists were good for that purpose, but these lists actually are not given as a checklist for self-examination. They're given as a basis for two profound exhortation. And those two truths are two points this morning. The first is this. You've learned the basics. Now strive toward maturity. You've learned the basics. Now strive for maturity. You know, striving for growth is just the most natural thing we humans do. When a baby is still in the womb, we're measuring and monitoring the growth week by week. And once he's born... He will experience the only time in his life where weighing more at each doctor's visit is a good thing. Got to grow. And when the child grows a little, he soon will be obsessed with his, with his own growth. I can't wait till I'm five and start school. I can't wait till I'm as tall as mom. I can't wait till I can dunk a basketball. 
And then in adulthood, it takes a little different turn. Uh, growing toward graduation, growing toward a promotion, growing toward expertise in my career field. And even as mature adults in older years, we're still striving to move forward. Uh, I'm learning how uh, healthy eating uh, uh, extends my life expectancy. I'm learning how to be involved in things that, that, uh, that contribute something to the community that I'm part of. I'm learning how to be a grandparent and nurturing my growing family, always growing, always maturing, always moving forward. It's what we do. So one would expect that that ought to be true of our Christian faith. We've learned the basics. Now we strive for maturity. We heard that concern two weeks ago, back in the end of chapter 5. Remember the three pictures? You ought to be teachers. So why do you need a tutor still? You ought to be eating steak. Why are you still being milk-fed? You ought to be mature, but you're like a baby. God expects us to grow up. Well, that's also the emphasis again here in verses 1 to 3. The idea is not, here are the six basic truths of the Christian faith, and when you learn these things, you've now arrived. That's how a lot of people view the catechisms. Here's the faith in question-answer form. When you learn this, you've graduated. No, you haven't. Catechisms are for children to learn the ABCs of the faith. And so verse 1 says, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. You've learned the basics. Now strive to grow. So how do we do that? Well, the text doesn't say, but we can think about how do we, how do we strive to, uh, to gain any expertise in anything? It takes time, for example. I'm always amazed how time-consuming new things can be. I get some program from my computer that's going to save me all kinds of time, and it's amazing how long it takes to get up to speed using that thing. It takes time. So if you will grow in the faith, you will have to invest time. Time to read and digest God's Word. Time to study it. Time to study it with other people, for most of our growth comes in the context of a, of a community. Time to ask questions. Time to think about what you've, what you've learned, heard takes time. Striving toward Christian maturity also takes effort. Where do we get the idea that, the, that Christian truths ought to be easy? That's absurd. Math and physics are difficult. Did you ever notice that? So if math and physics are difficult, why would we think that studying about the God who created math and physics, that ought to be a piece of cake? Training your hands to make something out of wood or clay, that's difficult. It takes work to do that. So why would we think that training our minds and training our hearts would be so easy? Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy, encouraging him to grow, and he used three examples. The soldier, ready for combat, the hardworking farmer, and the athlete training for a race. He could hardly have used three more powerful examples that striving for maturity means work, takes effort. Striving for maturity also takes humility. You know, by the time we get out of school, we tend to be pretty full of ourselves, and that's the point at which our growth often ends. 
for growing toward maturity necessitates that you recognize you have a long way to go. Worse yet, it necessitates that you recognize other people know more than you know. So God wants us to have a humble, teachable spirit. As James writes, humbly accept God's word. But no matter how difficult it might be, no matter how time-consuming, no matter how it might humble us, striving toward maturity is not optional. We see it in verse 3, and this we will do, God permitting. Here we're reminded that God is not at our disposal, we're at his disposal. We cannot even go on to Christian maturity apart from him. It is the grace of God that allows us to grow. And that grace then demands a response of diligence on our part. You've learned the basics. Now strive toward maturity. That's the first thing we learn, especially focusing on the first three verses. But as we move on to the next verses, there's a second, even greater truth for us. And that's this. You've tasted new life. Do not fall away. You've tasted new life. Do not fall away. These days in our culture, people don't stick with things very long. Have you noticed that? We're in and out of hobbies every other week. We trade cars before they're worn out. We change houses just because we got bored with that one and want something different, I guess. Many people go through several career changes in a lifetime. and Some go through marriages at about the same pace. So I guess it's not surprising that people's religious experience follows the same pattern. What sounded like a life commitment often becomes just a passing phase of life. But here the Lord warns us that he does not tolerate such behavior. Let me read again verses 4 to 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Last time we talked about those five experiences of the Christian life, and you were encouraged to examine whether or not those things were your experience, whether by those criteria you had really experienced the Christian life at all. But this writer, in writing to these Hebrew believers, assumes that they had experienced such a life. His point was to warn them that in the midst of their present trouble, they better not fall away from that life that they've experienced. In fact, he went so far as to say, if they turned away, there would be no way back. Now, to understand that clearly, we need to see the the sentence in its essence. It starts with the beginning of verse 4, and then it throws in those five descriptive phrases, and the sentence ends in verse 6. So taking the descriptive phrases out, it reads like this. It's impossible for those who have had these, these experiences, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. It's impossible for them, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Philip Hughes explains, it seems scarcely credible that one who has, in some definite sense, 
experienced all of this, should then fall away from this state of blessedness. Yet this is the dreadful possibility that is envisioned in this passage. At this point, I suspect some of you are saying, is he saying people can be saved and then lost again? Well, let's think about that a minute. If it does mean that people can be saved and then lost again, and some think that, it also means that they could never be resaved. They'd be lost forever. But then again, if a person can receive eternal life and then turn around and be lost, well, it wasn't really eternal life that they received, was it? Plus, if you say you can be saved and then lost again, what about Jesus' promises to the contrary? That no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. That what Jesus has begun in us will be completed until the day that he returns. That no one can bring a charge against those whom God has chosen. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. That those who are chosen and justified and sanctified will be glorified, not one of them lost. So this text is hard. It clearly warns against falling away. But it does so against the backdrop of the scripture that says that our salvation is eternal and that the Lord holds us in our hands. So how do we understand this? It's difficult. Let me suggest how we should think about it. If we look at things from God's perspective, as God tells us in his word, we know some things clearly. God has chosen whom he would save. Not because they're good enough, because he chose them in love. He sent Christ to die for them. He sent his spirit to call them to himself. And those who saves will never be lost. Not even one of them. That's clearly what the Bible teaches. So how many of you know that you're among the elect? How many of you know that you're one who's reborn? And if you think you know that, how do you know? What makes you sure? Indeed, many of us probably know someone who's quite convinced that they are among the elect, that they are truly reborn, and we're quite convinced they're not. The point is, while we can and should have assurance of our salvation... We never have firsthand God's view, knowledge of who's elect or who's reborn. God just does not give us access to that information. So, what do we know? God has given us His gracious covenant, wherein He makes promises, gracious promises to us. Promises of his care, promises of the forgiveness of sins. And he lays obligations on us. Specifically, the obligation to repent, turn away from every other hope we have, and trust in him. And that's what we have. His promises of grace and the obligation to repent and believe and walk in those promises. But with those promises comes the blessedness of eternal life. 
And with those obligations comes the threat of cursing if we break covenant with them. Now, that's always been the case throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament and New. That's always been what God's people have had, his gracious covenant, nothing else. We know about God's decrees. We know that in eternity past, he chose who he would save. We know that that exists, but we do not have access to the book of life where we can look up and find Hitchcock, Hitchcock, here's, here it is. Oh, oh yeah, here's my name. Okay, I'm all right. I'm in. It doesn't matter now what I do. No, we're never given that information. God knows that. We don't. We're given the covenant. Promises and obligations. Deuteronomy 29, 29 talks about that. The secret things belong to God. You don't know the secret things. But the things he's given you are yours to do. And what he's given us is his gracious covenant. So when we hear the gospel, we hear this good news of salvation offered in Jesus, and we turn away from our, 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 our sin and we embrace the Savior, we experience the wonderful grace of God. And, and we can't help but, but look back and say, how is this possible that God would save a miserable sinner like me? And God answers with the explanation of his sovereign grace. Hey, I chose you. In eternity past, and, I, and I, I've called you, and, and I've made you my own, and I will bring you to glory. All by undeserved grace, just because I love you. And so as we walk in him, he grants us assurance that we are indeed among his elect. We are those who are reborn in him. Not because we have secret information, but because we're walking as his children in, this, in, in covenant faithfulness, trusting repenting and believing. But though we can be confident that we are the children of God, we can never be so sure of that status that we can turn away from Christ and say, okay, I don't need you anymore. I've got your salvation in my pocket. I'm good. I'll do what I please now. If we can do that, we would show ourselves to not be a child of God. Because the children of God walk in covenant faithfulness, repenting and believing, repenting and believing. That's our life is, repenting of sin and trusting the Savior in areas that we never even knew existed before. So how as a church family do we know when one is among us who is not really one of God's people? How do we know? We don't. We accept one another based on our profession of faith in Jesus. But we have no way to look into people's hearts. God does that. We don't. Even the Apostle John wrote of those antichrists that were already in the world. He writes, they went out from us. But they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. In other words, we thought they were one of us. But when they left and turned their back on the faith, turned their back on the Savior, it became clear they were not. Otherwise, they could not have walked away. Folks, that's the experience of every church. It's been the experience of this church. It's the experience of every true church. So here in Hebrews, the Spirit warns us 
You've tasted the new life that we have in Christ. Don't fall away from it. Don't turn away. Don't turn your back. Don't walk out. Don't abandon the faith. So what does it mean to fall away? Does that mean that if anyone sins after becoming a Christian that he can never be saved? No. To fall or to falter or to commit a sin is our common experience even as we grow toward maturity. We fail repeatedly and repent repeatedly and renew our faith repeatedly. It's a daily exercise, folks, repenting and believing. But God's gracious promises assure us that he will continually cleanse and forgive us as we confess our sins and turn from them and and trust him anew. And God's grace has proven, I bet all of our experiences, has proven to be greater than we ever dreamed it might be. We see it in the experience of David. David sinned grievously. He committed adultery and then he murdered the woman's husband to cover up his sin. He rightly feared for his soul. But God did not cast him away. God sent his prophet to bring him to repentance and God forgave the guilt of his sin. So falling away is not to fall flat on your face and have to get up and with your nose bleeding and whatever. No. Falling away, the word is apostasy or to apostatize. You've heard that. Falling away is to renounce or deny or abandon or reject the faith. It's to quit believing, to quit trusting, to reject the notion that I need Jesus anymore. But by saying it's not simply stumbling, but rather profound rejection of Christ, we need to be careful not to imply that this is only a well-thought-out conscious decision. It can be much more subtle than that. The book of Hebrews warns us that we can just drift away out of neglect until we don't believe anymore. We don't feel any need for Jesus. And, and, And we can continue to sin repeatedly until our consciences are seared and we no longer care to repent. We no longer think we have a reason to need to repent. In fact, we can just ignore Christ for so long that we just don't think about him anymore. We don't care about him like we used to. That may be backdoor apostasy, but it's apostasy nonetheless. And so the Lord warns us. You've tasted new life. Do not fall away. Or as Paul wrote to Timothy, guard your heart. Finally, notice why this is so serious. In verse, the end of verse 6, we read, Because they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. You see, what we're talking about here is treason. Joining with those who crucified Jesus, selling him out. Judas is the prime example of this. With eyes wide open, even after Jesus confronted him concerning his temptations, He went out and betrayed the Lord and sold him out. Well, he felt bad about it afterward, but it was done. And in despair, he just went and hanged himself. In contrast, consider the Apostle Peter on the same night. In spite of all his bold intentions to be faithful, no matter what the cost, in a moment of weakness, he denied the Lord and was immediately crushed by his unfaithfulness. 
But Peter did not turn away. He persevered with those watching at the cross as Jesus died. He ran with John to the open tomb when he heard news of resurrection. Do you see the difference? Peter was restored, though he sinned miserably. Judas turned away into despair and was lost. Dr. F.F. Bruce explains, God has pledged himself to pardon all who truly repent. But scripture and experience alike suggest that it is possible for human beings to arrive at a state of heart and life where they can no longer repent. Well, our text ends in verse 7 with an illustration of fruitfulness. Back in the Gospels, Jesus told a parable about four different kinds of soils to talk about how the gospel is received. Here it's uh, uh, whittled down to two, uh, two kinds of fields. On both of those fields, the sun shines and the rain falls. Now, normally that would mean growth, a fruitful harvest, the blessing of God. But what if the result was only weeds, thorns and thistles? What if all the gracious sunshine and rain was for nothing? Well, he says that field would be burned off. Burned off in that culture, plowed under probably in our culture. You see, this truth is beyond our comprehension. This truth about grace and about our our obligation to respond to grace. But at the same time, it's pretty simple. God is gracious. More gracious than you ever dreamed. But his grace demands a response. He's promised us. But he's obligated us to respond to his promises in repentance and faith. So if you've tasted new life in Christ, do not fall away. It's a hard text. It's brought untold confusion to God's people over the years. It's actually destroyed many people's assurance of their salvation. So let me close with a thought-provoking question. What is it, then, that absolutely, certainly, without even the possibility of failure, what is it that secures your soul? It's not that we are enlightened, that we know a lot of good theology. It's not that we've experienced some spiritual high, that we, 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 we've experienced some joy that tastes like heaven on earth. It's not that we've encountered the Holy Spirit. Balaam's donkey encountered the Holy Spirit, but he wasn't saved. Nor can we rest in the fact that our hearts have been warmed by God's word. That we've been moved and thought it was wonderful. In fact, it's not even that we have seen or done some supernatural things. Jesus says that on the day of the judgment, some of the lost will plead, but Lord, didn't we do miracles and cast out demons in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, if our hope, 
our confidence is in any of those things, our assurance ought to be shaken. The only thing that secures our soul is Christ Jesus himself. Being in him. Being connected to him. And if that's true, then to abandon him, to cease to follow him, to stop trusting him, to stop listening and obeying him, well, it doesn't matter what wonderful past experiences we may have had, we're not saved. For we're not saved by having spiritual experiences, we're saved by Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews says, by grace you have come to understand this faith, now strive to move forward in response. And by grace you've tasted of new life in Christ. Be careful not to fall away. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, sin is so subtle, and we're so easily caught up in it, and we so easily find ourselves uh, thinking differently than we know we ought to be thinking. Father, if our salvation was dependent upon us, minding the store and uh, having our guard up, we would certainly all perish, for we are fickle, we're weak. Uh, Our our sinful flesh uh, sometimes overwhelms us. Uh, The enemy is against us. The world is going the opposite direction. But Lord, you hold your own close, and you secure our salvation. And yet, even as you do that, you warn us to not fall away. So may we take your grace seriously. And marvel in it and never turn it into a, a, a labor contract that if we do the right things, you'll save us. May we realize that it's pure grace, Lord, that you've lavished on us while we're undeserving. But having tasted of your grace, Lord, may we never even entertain the idea that we don't need you anymore. That something else is more exciting. That something else is more fulfilling. That something else has greater hope for our lives. Oh, grant to us, Lord, the grace to move forward to maturity and never fall away. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.